Before we begin, I would like to emphasize that this podcast is separate from my teachings and work at Del Seton Medical Center. Any discussions we have on this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and in no way connected to Del Seton Medical Center. Trying to do vascular devices without the input of physicians is sort of like trying to build a car without ever having a driver sit in the seat or trying to build a plane without ever having a pilot go over the control panel and say, money is like blood supply for ideas. I'm a blood supply doctor. And so I don't understand money like I do blood supply, but I understand that it's necessary. And it could be from many different sources or just one source, but somebody has to think it's a good enough idea that they're willing to put money into it. One of the most important first steps will be to ask the question, can the idea be protected? Is there intellectual property here where if you make it, somebody can't just make one just like it and wander off and, and use that instead? Two vascular surgeons walk into a bar and come out with a podcast. We are talking everything vascular and not. Welcome to the Life of Flow podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to yet another show of Life of Flow, our podcast where we talk about vascular and not. Today, I just wanted to say we just recorded a phenomenal, phenomenal episode today with Dr. Peter Schneider, professor of vascular surgery from UCSF. And we were talking about entrepreneurship in vascular care. And I am here with my co-host, Dr. Lucas Ferrer, and with my beautiful son, Mr. Lucas Montero. And I am Miguel Montero Baker, and I hope you enjoy this show. Lucas, what do you think? Let's do it. Let's go. Let's do it. Well, Peter, thank you very, very much for carving some time on the weekend to talk to us. This project is, is very exciting, and it's, it's great to be able to have and create this space for us to have conversations on all these other topics. You know, we're all obviously in love with medicine. We're all, by the way, all three of us are vascular surgeons and we certainly love what we do and we talk about science a lot, but it's great to sometimes in the podcast also have conversations about maybe how we got to where we are or, or you know, what inspired us to take a, a certain direction. And Dr. Peter Schneider, who's a professor of vascular surgery at UCSF and here today with us is personally one of, of my mentors, one of the people that I followed for many years. I look up to him in so many ways. And not only because he's, he's, I think, the epitome of you can be great and you can be amazing. And it doesn't mean that you have to be a difficult person. <laughs> and I think, Peter, you, you have that charisma and that demeanor that just is so approachable and is something that I have always looked up to and I want to emulate myself throughout my professional career. And so one of the things that I look up to uh, you a lot is this intense uh, uh, interest in the development of technology and this entrepreneur side of you that has been in the works for, I'm sure, many years. And for those of you that, that know you, we know that you've been crucial to helping a lot of companies maneuver the space and allowing us now to have tools that help us better care for our patients on a daily basis. I'd love to hear a little bit of your background as a vascular surgeon, which by the way, now you're in UCSF, but he practiced all his life in, in Hawaii. Uh, and he's a super surfer also too, also one of the highlights of Peter. But Peter, how, how did in your career, where did you get to the point where you started getting involved with some of the early startup companies? And for those out there that are listening and that maybe are peaked and have the interest and maybe want to be involved in entrepreneur projects, I'd love to hear your opinion on how that kind of tickled your interests throughout your career. Yeah, thank, thank you, Miguel. And uh, let me just say thanks, guys, for inviting me. Uh, Miguel, you know I've been a fan of yours since I met you. you I know you have. You bring a little bit of a, an artist's point of view to what I would say is otherwise pretty much a left-brain field. And uh, so I think in that sense, you, you contribute a lot. And, uh, and we've always had you know, very, very friendly interactions. And Lucas, I don't know you as well, but I'm getting to know you. And 
got to know you at least a little bit through the limb flow trials, et cetera. And uh, I, th- I think you have a really bright career ahead. So, and good luck on, on this endeavor. But okay, so this idea of uh, entrepreneurship, I would say I'm not a natural born entrepreneur. I, I don't really look at it that way, but I love new ideas. I mean, one of the most amazing opportunities we have as humans that so many that went before us, either within the human race or every other species, is this amazing advantage we have that if we dream something up that might be of value to our patients, et cetera, we actually can do something about it. It's amazing. I do not have an engineering or business background. I was a philosophy major, which is the study of ideas. The problem with philosophy is they're all very abstract. And now here I find myself in a field which I think was really the right choice for me, uh, vascular, and we become so dependent upon devices to treat our patients, to make the procedures safer, less invasive. And at the same time, each one of those devices is a very concrete, very real world, you know, sort of manifestation of an idea that somebody had at some point. And I became uh, really interested in this concept that, you know, again, our field is so device dependent and the pace of change has only increased. So every few months, maybe even once a month, something lands on your screen or lands in your hands or on the shelf and you're looking at it going, geez, where does this fit in my algorithm? What am I supposed to do with this? Does it really help or not? Do I believe the data or not? Was the clinical trial designed for the regulators or was it designed for us to really know, you know, is this going to help our patients? And it just struck me at some point that the divide between what lands like in front of us, like, oh, here, here's a tool and where it came from, you know, most of us myself, including, you know, the way things were for me a few years ago, I didn't have any idea where it came from. And I thought um, some better understanding of that would be a good, a good thing. And uh, so I decided to kind of pursue that. Again, I love new ideas. The way this whole thing got started for me was, um, as you say, I, I spent most of my career in Hawaii. I was 25 years there And really, honestly, in a way, it's a highlight because when I went there, there was nothing, no program, no vascular surgeon. And when I left there, I think it was a very sophisticated program that will stay on, that will be replenished, that will grow, et cetera. But during that time, as we all have experienced, as you become sort of collegial and respected among your colleagues, you get these jobs that you don't really want but you feel like you need to do in order to be a good team player. So I kept getting these higher and higher promotions within our promotion, I call it, it's like student council, um, within our 700 doctor medical group and uh, was more and more involved in administration. Uh, Again, not because I liked it, but I felt like it was an important contribution. Okay, fine. Anyways, in 2007, I got fired from that. We had a new medical director. He didn't appreciate the way I did things. I felt that this was uh, like pulling the rug out from under me. I was really mad about this because I'd put so much energy. I came home. My wife says to me, this is the best thing that ever happened to you. And I'm like, please, let me just complain for a minute. She says, this is the best thing that ever happened. She says, you're always telling me you have ideas and you don't have time to work on them. Why don't you do something about that? And this is the way I remember it. Maybe it was slightly different, but this was a a fork in the road for me where suddenly something got lifted off my plate that I didn't really, I I wasn't really in it, heart and soul. And I had this amazing opportunity to say, oh, what should I do with that time? Or where should I direct my interests? And I, I had drawings and lists and things of, I you know, different devices and or approaches, programs, things that I thought would make patient care better. And I went back to that. Within a couple of months, I had already some patent applications and other things that otherwise would have sat in the drawer. 
So like so many, like almost everything I have in life that's that's worth a darn. My wife had something to do with it. <laughs> Anyways, I'll, I'll stop there because I know you have other questions, but this is how this is how I got going down the road of thinking, you know, we need to better understand where these things come from. We need to develop mechanisms for vascular surgeons to have at least more input, if not more control over the whole process. Because trying to do vascular devices without the input of physicians is sort of like trying to build a car without ever having a driver sit in the seat or trying to build a plane without ever having a pilot go over the control panel and say, you know, this is confusing to me or this doesn't really work for me, et cetera. And yet this idea that docs should not be involved is really kind of going down that road, which I think is wrong. No, it's it's a, it's incredibly interesting uh, uh, the power of serendipity. The the one thing that as doctors we we all dread is ever losing our job, right? I, I mean, we 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 somewhat in many ways live ch- check by check, right? And uh, and then the thought that this one horrible moment is the one thing that your wife celebrated is incredibly interesting is, is to me. And I'm sure people that are listening may have had moments like that. I, I always say, hey, you know what? The it, the universe is conspiring. You know, Paulo Coelho in his book talking about how the universe conspires in a different way to point you into the right direction. It was really necessary for you to be fired, Peter. So I'm really happy. And I celebrate also the fact that you got kicked out of your job. It's, uh, it's interesting that you bring up Paulo Coelho because... You know, I've read so many of his books, although it's been a while, but this idea, this constant reminder that comes up in his, in his writings is that all of this that we see, touch, feel, experience is all temporary. And I think just keeping that in mind on a day-by-day basis is, to me, it's extremely helpful because it allows me not to overreact to negative things and maybe take just a moment longer to celebrate the really positive things. Can't say I really adhered to that my entire life. I was in too much of a hurry when I look back a few years, but, uh, but anyways, this is throughout his uh, writings and I think it's a, it's a wonderful reminder for all of us. Which was one of your kind of first projects in, in, in the med tech field that you hold dear to your heart that was of, of some special significance for you, maybe because you learned a lot, because it was your first, maybe you failed. Uh, you know, t- tell us maybe on, on one, what, what's a remarkable memory on, on some of your first endeavors in, in entrepreneurship, good or bad? So in the, in the area of device development, like I said, it's really concrete and specific. There are defined pathways for things, for example, through the patent office and through the regulatory system, through clinical trials, whether you need one for your device to go forward or not, you definitely need one to show whether it's this device is of value to the care of the patient. So there's a defined body of knowledge, but at the same time, it's far from cookie cutter. Each one seems to take on a life of its own, a very idiosyncratic life of its own from a standpoint of whether it's a response from regulators or could be the, the response from investors uh, or other people that might be interested in helping to fund a project. And so with each of these things, you learn something that you didn't know before. It's just like vascular surgery in the sense that you're learning from every case. Initially, you're learning a massive amount from every case. As you progress and and you become more expert, maybe a case only comes along every so often where you say, geez, I haven't seen that before. Or, you know, I've seen something like this. What, you know, how am I going to improvise? Or so we do learn a lot with um with each project. One of the things I did, I think that was really helpful was I tried to collaborate with others. You know, you have this idea, well, geez, if I tell everybody about my idea, 
somebody else will do it. Honestly, it's so hard to move an idea forward. And the thing is, if you keep it secret, then you'll be the only one that knows about it. It'll never move beyond a, a desk drawer. So, so I tried to find people that, uh, you know, filled in the part that I don't know. And I don't know almost everything, <laughs> at least when I started. Like I said, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a regulator. I'm not, I've gotten pretty involved in clinical trials. So that's helpful, but I'm not a manufacturer. So at each step, I tried to get other people involved that could help me to make this dream come true or, or you know, move this from an idea to a real reality for a device or whatever. And um, sometimes I'd hit a, a roadblock or more often it's a fork in the road where you could go this way or you could go that way. And so I'd call people that I knew, people that I'd made friends with that had been through some of these things and ask, well, what would you do? And very often I'd get 180 degrees, Conflicting. Different, <laughs> different advice. That's where each of these things, like I said, is idiosyncratic. So you are making these decisions and there are definitely some good ideas that never saw the light of day because the decisions kind of like that, that scene and that, I think it's the third movie in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Holy Grail one. I, I, I don't know if it's, the, I think it's the third one, but where there's a scene at the end where the guy has to step on exactly the right stone. And if he doesn't, Mm-hmm. The whole building is going to come down. And it, it's a little bit like that in the sense that that uh, you can recover from a bad decision, but each bad decision puts the whole project at risk. The other thing I'll just mention is that external circumstances really make a big difference in this. So, for example, during the 2008-9 housing mortgage crisis, what ended up happening was that people who normally would invest money into new devices just stop doing it. More recently, this has also been a challenge because this prediction that we're about to have a recession has been kind of looming over our heads for about two years, two and a half years. Whether we have one or not, I don't know, but but it's been almost about to happen. And so one, one thing your audience may not realize is where the money comes from that supports these things. And money is like blood supply for ideas. I'm a blood supply doctor. And so I don't understand money like I do blood supply, but I understand that it's necessary. And it could be from many different sources or just one source, but each one of these things has to be, somebody has to think it's a good enough idea that they're willing to put money into it. And Typically, something like device development, when you combine all the different ways that it may not become a reality, and we've talked about some of those, could be intellectual property, could be regulatory, could be clinical trial results, could be that all of those things get approved. And then the the VAC committee at each individual hospital says, nah, you were happy before. We're not going to pay for that. I mean, at each step. And so what happens is the uh, financial backing for most of these things are the, considered the highest risk investments. So if you go to, say, a retirement fund or a private equity or venture capital, et cetera, they know that within this field of device development, it's, say, for example, for a retirement fund, they will put most of their money into equities and bonds, but they'll have 5% or maybe 10% that they use for high-risk investments. That's where the money comes from that goes into these things. So we're already at the absolute highest end of the risk scale. And then if you said, okay, the economy is facing a downturn, we need to conserve cash in order to support our other high-risk investments because they may have trouble raising additional money or we need to conserve cash so that we can keep this or that company going to keep employees on so we don't have to let them go during this downturn, whatever it is. And so the investment that typically goes into the survival of these, quotes ideas that we're talking about, uh, this 
money, it can dry up in a hurry based on, I started out talking about external circumstances. You would think that the illnesses that we face, that our patients face, that we try to manage, they they never seem to dry up in a hurry. There's always an excess. And I would say with the aging of the population and the demographics of what we do, there's always going to be a slope of the curve like that for whatever it is, diabetes, you know, overall amount of PAD out there, uh, et cetera. But the funds that allow these next step ideas to come to reality, they're a little more like this, you know, based on many other circumstances that sometimes may be unpredictable. Say there's somebody two, three years out of fellowship has an idea, uh, you know, putting yourself back, if you can put yourself in that position or, and go, having gone through what you've gone through and with the experience that you have, can you give us kind of like a 30,000 foot view of what the process is and what they should do and what they should expect to say, make that idea at least start it in the process of becoming reality? There are some really basic steps to think through as you're deciding what's worth your time and what's worth your energy. Probably one of the most important first steps will be to ask the question, can the idea be protected? Is there intellectual property here where if you make it, somebody can't just make one just like it and wander off and and use that instead? You know, that, that's a little bit of an education on how the patent office works. But, you know, with Google patent search, you can do a lot on your own without any real basic knowledge to see what has gone before it. So I'd, I'd say that's pretty basic. And you can file a provisional patent for very little money. And then you have about a year to go back and formalize the patent application the one thing is, though, when you file a provisional patent, the idea that just a couple things. One is you really need to have in there, in that provisional patent, why and how your idea works. You know, what is the specific physical feature or features that allow it to do something that you want it to do? And the other thing that you really want to do in a provisional patent is have, at least in broad categories, the different aspects of the device. So if you go back a year later and you start adding a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of big categories of things that this device can do that you didn't mention before, you might be starting over again in a sense. Or in other words, that provisional patent, that establishes the date at which you had this idea and anything that gets filed after it, even if it's just a day after it, is not going to preempt your idea. So you definitely don't want to start the clock over some months or a year down the road when you hire your when when you file your provisional patent. The second thing about intellectual property is it's incredibly specialized. The way uh, vascular now is becoming more and more specialized. Some people mainly do venous. Some people mainly do dialysis. Most of us do a lot of things, but some just do aortic. Well, in the patent world, there are particular people that don't just do medical devices, but they just do stents, for example, or they just do, you know, I have a friend I went to college with who is a patent attorney and his whole thing is Christmas lights. That's all he does. And you wouldn't think of that as a specialty. Just keep in mind that depending on the nature of your device, you may need somebody pretty specialized. So I'd say that number one is intellectual property. And then the number two thing that you got to do really early is, can this thing that I have in mind, can it even be built? You know, can it be? So this is where getting an engineer, if you're not already, many many people in our field are engineers. They've got that total left brain thing going on. But I think talking to an engineer early on have them sign a, an NDA, a non-disclosure, and they're used to this because a good engineer that's working on multiple projects, they understand that people need to protect their ideas. So 
to talk to an engineer about, okay, if you were going to design one, help me think through what it's going to look like. Help me come up with some thoughts around whether it even can be made, what it would take to make it. Some ideas are amazing, but you can tell early on that it's going to cost so much to make it. If you know, if you had like you came up with the tricorder, you know, this idea from Star Trek that you could wave something over somebody and and cure them, it might be so expensive to make in its first iteration that it kills the project. I think it's important though, uh, Peter, to not deter young, enthusiastic people in healthcare as to the simplicity of of putting in a provisional patent. I mean, you go online, the USPTO, the United States Patent and Trademark Office, and it kind of walks you through. I've done this a couple of times for, you know, it's two in the morning and you can't sleep and you have this idea of this phenomenal balloon that you that's going to do this and that. You, you know, essentially need a really good descriptor. You need to draw your idea and, and then you file it. And this I mean, is what you do at two in bucks. the morning. Huh? This is what you do at two in the morning. That, sometimes. That's sometimes what my brain does. Yeah, it doesn't turn off. But it, I'll just say that's a provisional. Now, to Peter's point, if there's some wings in the project and you start getting a team behind it and it makes sense and people are somewhat excited, then that's when you engage a lawyer and you go down the route. Because essentially what these guys do, and I think, by the way, I think artificial intelligence and large language models are going to completely revamp this this particular part of the business. But that's why these lawyers have sub, 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 sub specialty, right? They're like, I only do like endovascular peripheral tools because they're almost like a Bible of this. And they can know, like they'll remember patents and then they'll bring this information and they'll say why your idea is not defensible or why it is. And then you pay some big bucks to get that. And then you have a more, you know, formal, formal patent, but, but, it, you know, people could just submit a provisional, you know, online. It's not, and not, not overly complicated. And how, how do you start? So you're really early on, you talk to a lawyer, you, you, I guess, I wouldn't, for, I you wouldn't for, involve a lawyer on the, oh, you, you talk to an engineer, you have to, you pay, imagine you pay the engineer a consultant fee. So you're paying it out of pocket. The engineer says, you're a genius. This is going to be the best thing ever. Then you go find a lawyer, you pay another I don't know how much, probably 10, 10 grand, five grand. I don't know. So you're about $5,000, $5,000. So maybe you're $10,000 into the thing. Then what do you do? Then how do you start getting money? I mean, I imagine most, a lot of people don't have a business background, don't know how to even like manage a business or what the steps are. You know, what do you do if you are a doctor with a good idea? <laughs> I don't know that we have enough time to, answer that in one hour, but I would love to hear your ideas, Peter. I'm a young, yeah, let's say I'm, I'm recently graduated. I have phenomenal idea. Maybe I, I, I put in a provisional, I protected it. And, and now what, uh, you know, and I guess you're asking about funding and how to go about that and how to, what's your thoughts? Uh, if there's a, a very excited listener right now with a great idea, how, sh and he has, he doesn't have Peter Schneider's Rolodex that can call up a ton of engineers and companies and make things because that's you know your 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 net your net worth is as much as your net work and I think that's why in, in your career as you get a little bit older you know more people you can make things work with a few calls like Peter said I'll call this guy I'll call that guy but how does a young person that doesn't have that network potentially go from idea to to creation? I think it's it's pretty uh, common for somebody working on a new idea to put at least a little bit of their money into it to at least get something started. And like I said, each of these projects is a little different, but I can give you some, some ideas on how to move forward. One is to think through an easy or simple or inexpensive way to show proof of concept. Even if it's, if it's in the lab, if it's in vitro, it's in the preclinical arena, et cetera, but some way to show proof of concept. Because I think once you can demonstrate that your concept works, people are a lot more likely to pay attention and to think about investing in it 
The second thing is that there are a lot of uh, small business innovation grants, SBIR it's called. They're not easy to get. It's, I think, unheard of to get one on your first application, but there are a lot of various programs, mainly federally administered, where you can apply for money. And if you get it, it's terrific because it's non-dilutive. You know, the, the payoff is that you're going to come back to them and, and tell them what you've developed. And hopefully it turns into a company or some type of endeavor that then makes life better. And so this is supported by your tax dollars. And there are a variety of programs. SBIR is probably the one I know best, but, and there are people that you can also hire that can help you sort through that, or you can sort through it yourself. I think most doctors are familiar with grant applications, especially doctors that are used to coming up with new ideas. So, so that's another one. Yet another possibility is to look for, you know, Miguel put the qualifier on there that, you know, you don't have a, a very thick contact list yet, let's say. But there are groups that look at new ideas, different types of uh, incubators, accelerators, et cetera, that you might talk to. And then the other possibility, if you don't know, is to approach somebody just either by, by email or by phone or in person at a conference or something like this, go to a conference where they're talking about stuff exactly in the area where you want to develop it and look and see who are the interesting people, who are the enthusiastic, passionate, energetic people and approach one of them or, or more and, and see if they can do anything to help you out with next steps, et cetera. I will say to me, the part that I enjoy the least is the actual fundraising. A person who's a natural born entrepreneur, I, I, some seem to really thrive in that environment. Some seem not to be interested. I, I don't know, but somewhere along the, along the way, somebody has to pay for it. <laughs> if, 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 if this good idea of yours is going to be developed and where and how people get interested is highly variable. One other potential source of funding that I left out is, you know, I talked about SBIR grants. There are also a variety of angel groups. And angel groups are typically more community-based. Like, so for example, uh, they're, they're probably, I don't know this for sure, there's probably a group in Austin or certainly most major cities have an angel group. And what these are is typically people who've, run businesses, they've made money from it. They want to donate, not donate in the sense of give, but donate, make their community better. So they want more businesses in their community. And if you have an idea that could turn into a business and they are interested, and there's of course a variety of motivations. I'm just describing kind of the general ethos of how it works. These are folks that are prepared to make what they know are high-risk investments because they're financially sound and secure, and they're really investing in their community. And these angel groups are a tremendous source of early funds for a lot of ideas. Like I said, usually community-based. In essence, you either bootstrap it and you, you self-fund. Friends and family tends to be a very quick way of, of getting a little bit of a seed fund for yourself. And then the incubate, I mean, angel investors, banks, which is very atypical for this sort of thing, they, they won't really care for it. And, and the incubators and accelerators. And I, I personally have the experience of working with the Texas Medical Center Accelerator in the downtown med center. It's called TMCX. And I would invite anybody out there that's listening that has a great idea is go to these accelerator incubators because you know, essentially they're going to give you all that role, right? They, they obviously, they want a piece of your company. You know, they vet your project. They want a piece. They have a, they're, they're going to have an equity play, but they will help you get off your ground, right? And, and it's an incredibly good way to learn the ropes. In TMCX, for example, they actually have one-year internships that you could do to learn how to accelerate programs and to, yeah. So like, if you're like, I'm, I'm super interested and I'm fine, I'm finishing my fellowship, you could do a six months internship 
in incubators and accelerators. And quite frankly, this is a question for you, Peter. I mean, you're now in the heart of Silicon Valley and and, and the heart of, the more I read about medtech and finances and development is most people tend to say that you have to be close to where the business is happening. And, and at least in software, it seems like, you know, San Francisco and Silicon Valley is the place to be. Do you feel that that is also uh, with med tech? Do you feel that w- there's there's a perfect synergy of things that happens in the in the social elite, if you may, in the social scientist elite of uh, of Silicon Valley that helps and aids med tech? Or do you think that doesn't necessarily apply, and that's more like a software thing? Med tech is more. All over America, you will find pockets. Well, uh, this is a good question you asked. I I don't think that geographic proximity is as important now as it was as recently as five or 10 years ago. I think everybody is, this idea of quotes, working from home, almost every true startup starts at home on some level. The ability to connect virtually like we're doing right now it's just so common now. It's hard to remember what it was like before that, but it wasn't that long ago where a Zoom thing was not part of our daily activity. Having said all that, what that proximity does that, say, being you know somewhere like Hawaii, where it's not just not close, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a real issue and uh, getting there and then time zones, the whole thing. But The proximity, what it gives is the following. One, if you're going to hire experts to work in your company, it really facilitates if if you've got geographic proximity. And this is where the software thing is so important because there's so many, you know, and this is why what's growing in Austin right now with a lot of high tech moving there means that engineers and other people, manufacturers are going to move there. It's not impossible to do it from a distance, but especially when a company is early, the ability to go shoulder to shoulder and sit down with somebody to look at things together, I think is is important. The other thing is it's sort of like the difference between having a conference on Zoom or attending a conference or a meeting in person you don't get the same level of exposure to the passion, the energy, the, the enthusiasm, the joie de vivre, whatever you want to call it. It's really not so easy to get it over, over uh, computer connections as it is in person. And this is also where the proximity makes a difference. When you drive around Silicon Valley, so for example, I go and do some work with a startup and I'm driving around one of these little nondescript neighborhoods where every single business is another med device startup. It's hard not to be affected by that. And then you meet the people. Oh, yeah, come have lunch with well, I'm meeting up with so-and-so from across the street. And then you hear what they're doing. You go like, wow, maybe I should be thinking about that. For so So that kind of proximity is hard or that kind of influence is not so available when you don't have geographic proximity. It's not impossible and it's more possible now than ever. But I think, you know, the other thing is just to be fair, med devices are being developed in, you know, all over the United States. And there are only a few real hubs. Silicon Valley's one. And you could argue, you know, Golden Triangle in North Carolina. There's also a kind of a triangle in North San Diego County. There's, you know, some areas, Minnesota, of course, Minneapolis primarily is big. And then lastly, I'll say around Philly, there's small one around Boston, there's a small one, but many city that you don't think of it as a place where, and, and there are probably still some devices being developed, but I, I don't recommend that you move necessarily to Minneapolis or or California to get your device off the ground, you know, if you are that young doctor, but there's a high chance that it's somewhere along the road, you'll be talking to people from those places.
because you've been in academics, how do you navigate intellectual property and the university? I will say that my experience of my own and also talking to other people is it really does vary. And it's something to get sorted out early. You don't want to get, you know, halfway or almost all the way to the finish line and actually not know, oh, well, who actually owns what? And so talking to them early and some, I think some big institutions, it's not just university. I mean, so many of us are employed now. It's rare to be that one person out there. Now in OBL, it's different because most people I think are still self-employed, but even OBLs now are becoming parts of big companies. So they may have a policy, but I think it's important to know what the policy is. These policies have really changed and have really become more sophisticated over the past 10 or 15 years. Cleveland Clinic has, you know, they want theirs a certain way. University of California wants theirs a certain way. Kaiser wants theirs a certain way. So, and they all have tech transfer offices. So you go talk to them early and make sure you know what the rules are. And if they say, well, geez, if you do anything while you're on campus, you use the phone, you use the computer, you talk to so-and-so in the lab, we expect a part of it. Then you have to decide either, either I'm going to do that and the organization is going to be part and parcel or not. And then I will say also, you know, I mentioned Cleveland Clinic before. Well, I know they have a whole, an operational capability to help their doctors develop their devices. And where they have, for example, in-house, or at least this is what I understand to be the case from previous conversations, in-house intellectual property and, you know, ways to, so if you're in an institution that has that, you may well be greatly facilitated by taking advantage of that. How much is the upside of having that infrastructure as opposed to you say, okay, my idea is good enough. I have enough of a, uh, of yeah. a commitment to it that I'm just going to go by myself. And yeah, it's, it's a fair question. And it's one of those many decisions that you'll make as you're doing those stepping stones along the way toward development. If you're in an institution that really can facilitate what you're doing, it might make sense to stay within your institution. If you're in an institution that is not going to facilitate and they're just saying, well, look, if you use our phone or you do anything on campus, we expect a big chunk. Well, then you may say, well, geez, you know, I, I'm doing this on my own at night and on the weekend. I'm not using labs here or anything like that. Well, then you may want to go completely separate, but you definitely want to document it and you definitely want to follow the rules. You don't want any surprises later where you've recruited a bunch of investment and the investors think, oh, we own this much. <laughs> and, and that documentation, it is important. So, for example, I've personally had the experience of digging through, probably wouldn't be like this now because you'd have electronic copies of everything, but I've had the personal experience of digging through a mountain of file boxes, looking for that one single piece of paper with signatures that said, oh, this is what I'm going to do. It's cool with you, right? Because at some point, an acquirer, they want to know that when they acquire something, they actually own it. It's like getting the pink slip for your car. They don't want to be exposed to this idea that, oh, some unnamed or unknown party is going to come later and say, well, actually, you know, we own 10% of that. And too bad they didn't let you know that at the time. It's like, no. So in any event, so I think just having everything documented, you know, if you are going to develop something, but you're not going to do it within the institution, it's a good idea to, to understand who needs to know what about that. And if they feel like they still have something to say about it, it's way, way, way better to get it sorted out now, but while your idea is still worthless than to wait until it's worth something. And then there's actually people have a stake in the game of, you know, trying to make it challenging or, you know, they, there's money on the table or whatever. I would invite everybody that's listening that currently has a job come Monday. Uh, no, really ask your admin for a copy of your contract. Because I bet you the 99.9% .9 of the people listening 
don't know what the intellectual property clauses in the contract they because you know they you when you sign there's like 30 pages and you you're just like so this is my salary really okay and then you sign and you don't think about all these things but it's important so one if you are in the process of getting a job talk about ip make it a point of discussion on the front end about what that means and if you're already in an institution specifically an academic institution then understand what the ownership situation is. And if you're, I, I'm not going to say stuck, but if you're bound to a, a, a contract and they're getting their piece, then make it worth it, okay? And what do I mean with that is use the university. You, you know, it's not that hard. And if they are really already keeping a percentage, then you should feel much more empowered to have the conversation with, the chair of surgery or the chair, you know, of, of research and say, I need funds because I know that you're going to keep it anyway. So help me move the needle forward. So I think these conversations become incredibly important for anybody that's, that's out there even thinking of having an idea. And I do not want to finish this conversation without at least spending a couple of minutes of our time talking about conflict of interest. We've had a lot of, uh, conversations here in the last two days, Peter, and, and one of them was an investment strategist saying, you have to get involved with a company that you, uh, uh, he was an angel investor. And so he was telling us about how, as he's like, well, you, you invest your funds and then you do everything to move the needle for that company forward. And you talk about it and you utilize its services. And of course, in his mind, he's talking you know, a software, an app, you know, he's not necessarily talking medical. And in the back of my mind, it's, well, that poses a challenge for us, right? Because now I'm conflicted. And if I have to be involved in a company, then how do I move the needle in the clinical space without it compromising my ability to be a good clinician? What's the path to maneuvering that in, in your very personal opinion, Peter, how, how do you maneuver conflict of interest as you're engaging in some of these companies? That's an ongoing uh, challenge and discussion. I think ideas and concepts and also those drive the rules. The rules are changing. They seem to change with some regularity. ACCME has new rules this year or I think earlier in the year. So I think part of it is just being aware of what the rules are because they do change. The second thing is that I never get involved in anything that I don't think works. In other words, if somebody came to me with an idea that I didn't think would be a value or I don't think it's going to help patients and it's like, oh yeah, this is going to make us a lot of money. Don't waste your time. It's sort of like trying to take care of a patient that doesn't want to comply with any of your recommendations or they, or it, it, it's literally, you kind of wonder like, well, geez, I'm not really helping anybody here, maybe hurting. So don't do it. Get that person with an, a doctor that can help them. I never get involved in anything I don't think is, is useful or that will eventually become something good. That's a good rule of thumb. The third thing is, you know, when you do have an interest, disclosing that is important. I don't know if our disclosure system really does that much, but I do think it is important. And also that there are ways to kind of mitigate certain things. Like, so for example, you know, if you're like giving a talk or something for something that where you have an interest in that in terms of you're a consultant advisor, whatever, I usually put that out there. Like, like for example, I've done a lot of work with, say, for example, uh, limb flow. So if I give a talk on limb flow, I usually like underline it on my disclosure slide so that people know like, hey, this is something that I've been involved in. I don't think it's bad to be involved in these things. I don't think that there's much chance that a lot of these things will ever get developed if we're not involved. So the disclosure piece, then another thing is that to the extent possible, I try to let the data, like I'm not here to talk anybody into anything. If it doesn't work, <laughs> the sooner we know that, the better. So I try to focus on the data 
when I'm presenting anything and try to, with the idea being that whoever the audience is, they have to decide for themselves if they think it's, it's a good idea or if the data backs it up. And if the data is not quite there yet, it's better to just say that and say that, you know, this needs more development, that kind of thing. Would you expand? Because I'm a little bit surprised with some of these new rules that they've imposed on us, where if you're doing CMEs for certain societies and you've helped develop some of these companies, then you're somehow already blocked from being able to talk. And so it's almost like, so we're being punished for being part of evolution, but we really need to be part of this company because why would you let an engineer, back to your point at the beginning of the podcast, why would you let you know a, a plane be built if you've never put a, you know, if you, if you never actually put a captain of a plane in the plane to tell you what, so, you know, how do you remove the physician from the equation? But then you're at the end, you're, you're somehow imposing on them some restrictions to talk because they are part of the incision. So, you, you know, what, what's your thought on that, Peter? Because I, I, I think it's a little bit almost like counterintuitive. Yeah. Well, it, it's clearly an unresolved issue and it is, it seems counterintuitive. I don't know how it will be resolved. I understand the need to make sure that things aren't just being commercially driven. Like I said, when you give a talk, if you've been involved, make it clear. If, you know, there may be some things where you just say, look, I, I'm not going to give that talk or whatever, or I'm not going to give that presentation. I agree with you. It doesn't make a lot of sense the way things are currently the way they've they've currently been asserted. One thing about the ACCME rules, the new ones, there are different concepts. It's not a very long list of recommendations, but but there's different concepts at play, like an ineligible company, for example. If, If you're working on an idea in your garage and you don't have a regulatory plan and you haven't approached the possibility of regulatory approval, that's not an ineligible company. So my first question when I read that is, well, what is exactly an ineligible company? I had to get a lawyer to tell me because I, I didn't really understand it, what that meant exactly. And like every set of rules, uh, there's still some interpretation that has to be done. You just have to have a rationale for your interpretation. I'm going to, I'm going to take a free, free, uh, indirect legal advice. What was the definition of your conversation with your lawyer about what ineligible companies are? Yeah. So I'm not a lawyer. I kind of looked at this and said, geez, I better find out what exactly this means. Cause this has a big effect on my life Correct. going forward. I want to follow the rules. It's absolutely essential. I, whether you believe they're good rules or not, or how that shakes out, an ineligible company is one that makes, sells, produces, distributes devices. For the uh, purposes of our conversation, it's one that, that produces vascular devices. So if you have an idea and you're working on, in your garage and you're working with an engineer and you've got a patent and this and that, if it does, if the device is not on the regulatory pathway, it's not on a regulatory pathway. My understanding is that it's not an ineligible company at this time. Now, your hope, your fondest hope and dream is that it will become <laughs> at some point. Yeah, especially if you're part of it, yeah. But right now, it's not. Then the second thing is, if it is an ineligible company, are you, have you been asked to give a CME talk on device produced or in an area where that device is located. So for example, supposing you're working on a Venus stent, just to pick one out of a random idea, and somebody asks you to give a talk on acute lower extremity ischemia. And these seem to be two really different areas. Correct. And so this is where the gray is of trying to interpret that. Like to me, those are two different areas. I guess you could argue that the way the rules are written that somebody else could come along and say, oh, no, 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 that's actually the same area. But if they are different areas and you have a rationale for that, 
my understanding is that that still is acceptable. And then the third thing is that let's just say you've been asked to give a talk and it is an ineligible company and it is an ineligible company where you have a conflict of interest. My understanding is that disclosure alone is probably not good enough that you need to have a way to mitigate that conflict. And there's different ways to do it. So for example, and this is, I'm not giving legal advice here. This is, I'm just giving what I understand to be the case that you can still have a situation where you submit your presentation ahead of time and a fully qualified person looks at it and says, well, actually they're only presenting data here. They're not, this is all published or this is all peer reviewed, et cetera. There is no apparent conflict, et cetera. You know, those kinds of things. And this is my interpretation that probably somebody could come with a completely different interpretation, but that's how I look at it. And I, I do think that it's important that these conflicts be mitigated. And for the reason that you alluded to, Miguel, I don't think that it's going to lead to the growth and development and enrichment and betterment of our field if we have this severe diversion, like the last thing you want is to invite somebody to educate us on something they don't know about. They don't know anything about. They don't know how to use it. They never used it. They never imagined what it could be good for. How is that going to work? That doesn't make any sense either. The other thing about this, this whole area, I do, you know, I do think it's evolving. One thing I'll say, this is a completely different than the CME is that if, if I've been involved with a device, either it was my idea or I helped bring it forward or it helped to consult with the company or on some level, I want to be super careful about ordering inventory on my own. Now, this is mainly affects hospital-based situations, but I don't want my hospital coming back to me saying, oh, no, you... You just did that because you have some. So most of the situations I've been in, I've been very much appreciated that we do the inventory as a group. You know, so for example, if we're going to try something new, a new device, or we're going to say, oh, let's get this or that catheter, let's incorporate it into our practice. I think that needs to be done as a group and not as an individual to the extent that you can. And I do think that that helps because you know, I don't want to be the only one at my hospital that says, oh, I'm the only one that's willing to try this. Oh, and by the way, I have an interest in it. I, I like to try to keep those separate if I can. Should you even be involved in that decision? Because you have such standing and respect among all your peers that your opinion is going to have, you know, a lot of weight. And I think going back to, to some of the points we said, I think and going back to some of the things that have been in the news, you know, we have to be really careful about trust because we enjoy the benefits that we enjoy in society because they're, you know, we all decided to, as a society, to trust doctors with the care of patients. So I think innovation is very important, but there can't be innovation without trust. So to your point, Miguel, you know, is it fair that somebody that's involved in a company help develop a product, go out to the you know, SVS and give it a conference saying how well it works. If there's a potential to damage trust with us and the public, with, uh, you know, the hospital staff, with administration, should we just say no? Because we enjoy so much benefits, you know, we get to innovate, we get to treat patients, we get to have this position. So should we just say no? I think in an indirect way, that's, that's what Peter's saying, which is, when this pushes all the way through to the point where there's commercial availability of a company that you're involved with, it is probably the best thing to do to recuse yourself out of the procurement process. You know, once it gets there, hey, it's a group. You know, if the group believes that this one particular device helps patients, then we should purchase and put it on the, on the regardless. And, and again, I mean, I, I would personally even potentially just remove myself from that point 
you know, not, not the talking about it, because I think the talking, we need to be able to tell the story of what we added. But when it's commercially available, then there's, I think that's probably clearer that you remove yourself from that decision. I think that's what you do in a, in a, by saying, let the group decide what we put on the, on the, in the cath lab, right? Or, or on the hospital walls. I think that's a reasonable approach, personally. But in any event, it sounds like we're all aware of this as a potential issue. You, you, and I, I really like Lucas's point that the more we can establish and maintain trust, then the better the whole system is going to be, the better the chance that the patients are going to get the right thing, the better the chance that new and yet more draconian regulations or concerns won't come down the, down the road. And I think just as an, as an, you just have to be careful as an individual, what you do as an individual, say, for example, something has good data behind it and other people agree that's different than one of us talking ourselves into thinking, oh, this is the best thing ever. Let's order a million of these things. I think it's better to, to uh, try to avoid that approach. Well, I, I can safely say that this has been probably one of our most educational, enlightening casts. I know that the time is not enough to touch on whatever I personally would like to know on this because it's a big, big topic. But Peter, you have been just amazing at delivering the message of allowing us to learn from you. And I can assure you that there's going to be hundreds, hopefully thousands of people out there that are going to generate ideas and they're going to be invited by this conversation today to push forward their ideas because patient care will be improved by innovation, no matter what, and obviously responsible based scientific, et cetera, et cetera. But Peter, thank you very much, man. This, this has been really cool and having you here has been a blessing in, in every way. Yeah. Thank you so much. Great to talk guys. Thanks for the invite. Hi. Well, thank you everybody for tuning in and we'll see you on the next episode. Talk to y'all later. Pura vida.